got a Bible, go to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. We're uh, continuing in week four of our series called Red Letters. And what we're trying to get after in this series is what does Jesus think about the church? When Jesus thinks about the church, when he thinks about our church, what does he think? What is he after? What is he driving us toward? That's what we're after in this series. So we live in a current world, right, where, um, I mean, there's Yelp reviews and there's uh, Facebook threads and comment sections. And you can literally find out what anybody thinks about anything. Like the most random, strange people in the world, people you never see or ever meet, you can roll open to like uh, review threads and go, well, there's this strange person. Here's what they think. I guess that matters, right? Um, And so we live in a world where you can have comments on churches and threads about churches and what people think about the church at large or particular churches. And so in a world like that, a series like this, I feel like is really important. Because we can find out what any random stranger thinks about any given church. You can even Yelp Frontline Church if you want to. But at the end of the day, what really matters is not what rando stranger thinks. What really matters is what does Jesus think? What is Jesus driving us toward? Because there's a lot of opinions and a lot of preferences thrown around and a lot of kind of places and positions we'd love to hold. But at the end of the day, there's only one verdict that matters. There's only one voice that matters, and it's the voice of Jesus. And so as as a 14-year-old church, our hope has kind of been in this series to grow back to the drawing board, get back to ground zero as we think about doubling our lifespan the next 14 years. What is Jesus calling us toward? What is he getting, getting us ready to uh, encounter with him and as he shapes us and leads us? That's what this series is about. So with any uh, further ado, uh, Re- Revelation chapter 2, we're going to be looking today at verses 18 through 29. This is the fourth letter to the church at Thyatira, and uh, it's the longest of the seven letters. And so I want to begin our time together by reading it, verses 18 through 29. If you don't have a Bible, the words will be on the screen behind me. I'll read this, I'll pray, and then we'll jump in from there. So the voice of Jesus speaks to us like this. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, who has feet like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love, and faith, and service, and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality, and behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed. And those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of their works, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give each one of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. And the one who conquers, who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as with earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of God to us. Let's pray together. King Jesus, we come to you now by the power of the Spirit, the glory of the Father, and we just confess together, we're going to need your help this morning. This is a wild passage, 
And uh, it's not familiar to us. It's not anything that we're used to reading, but it's your word to us. And every word you speak to your church is intended to build us, to shape us, to comfort us, to warn us, and to move us forward in a life that is all surpassing pleasure in your presence. And so God, I pray for the variety of ways that we're coming in today, that you would meet each one of us, that your word would be what it is, living and active and able to address us right where we are. So God, we sit underneath your word. We sit underneath your kingship. Jesus, you have authority over us. Shape us accordingly. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, hey, in the year of 1820, you may have heard this story before. In the year of 1820, Thomas Jefferson, he's kind of a big deal in the United States history. Thomas Jefferson went to a bookshelf sometime during that year. He was three years before he died, and he was weary of the religion that was being tossed around in his day. He went to a bookshelf, and he pulled off of the shelf a version, uh, the King James Version of the Bible. Along with the book, he had in his hand a razor, and some glue. And so I said, he was weary of the religion being tossed around in his day. He couldn't reconcile certain things that were being taught in the church. He didn't like all of it, and he felt like some of it was needless. And so as he took the razor and some glue, he began to cut out sections of the Gospels that he didn't like and paste other sections into a new document that he did like that would be his own version of the Bible. It's been known as the Jefferson Bible. It's known as the Jefferson Bible. He titled it, The Life and Morals of Jesus of Nazareth. And so what he did is he removed any reference to miracles, any reference to the supernatural, any reference to the resurrection in the gospel accounts, and any passages that portrayed Jesus as divine, he removed it. And so then later when asked about his personally tailored Bible, Jefferson said that he believed he had the ability to discern the difference between what he called, quote, the diamonds and the dunghill of Scripture. He cut away everything he didn't like to leave the parts that he preferred. And again, this is known as the Jefferson Bible. Now, in hearing about the Jefferson Bible, likely there's a variety of reactions in the room, right? There's some of you that are kind of startled and like, oh my gosh, like what an amazing, staggering hubris that guy had, right? Um, there's others that kind of go, well, I kind of feel like there's certain passages of Scripture that I don't know what to do with either. I don't know that I'd go that far, but there it is. But here's what I want to bring that up for this morning. All of us have a tendency, maybe even subconsciously, but all of us have this tendency to come across certain passages of Scripture and to want to edit them or crop them or put a blindfold over our eyes and pretend they're not there or to bitmoji them into something much more tame and preferable to us, right? And what we're left with when we do things like that, what we're left with is not actually God. What we're left with when we want to cut and crop and edit and shape and reshape is not God. And there's no reliability that the one we were left with would be God because what we've done in that moment is we've created a God of our own making. We've created a God after our own likeness that's much more preferable, much more tolerable, and much more acceptable to our friends. Tim Keller, pastor in New York City, says it this way, if your God never disagrees with you, you might just be worshiping an idealized version of yourself. Man, why such stings this early in the sermon, right? Why such stings? But it's true. If your God never disagrees with you, that's because it's you. You're God. You're your own God. So why do I tell you that this morning? Because Jesus is about to say some really uncomfortable things in the passage we're reading this morning. Like he's just going to go for it with this church. 
And I want you to hear, he's not just like letting it loose because he had a bad day. Like, it's not like, oh, the king of the universe has had a bad day. Stay out of his way today, right? It's like, that's not what's going on with Thyatira. He didn't wake up on the wrong side of the bed and have you know, interrupted sleep the night before. That's never the case with Jesus. He's going to speak with a tone of warning, and it's good for us to hear this tone from Jesus today. It's good for us. We don't cherry pick passages of scripture. We just systematically move through them, and Jesus speaks to us with his authority on his timeline as his words unfolded to us. And the reason it's good to hear this tone from Jesus today is because it's a counter, it's a counter example of the soft, Swedish pageant Jesus that has a sash around him, that has nicely groomed hair, that's, that's not offensive, that's harmless and universally accepting of all people everywhere, just handing out love like it's candy, right? It's different than that. This is the true Jesus, like the real Jesus that's got like, you know, ragged hair of being a homeless rabbi, but he knows what's up. Like he knows what he's saying. He's going to say some things that are hard for us to hear, but it's not just to the church at Thyatira. It would be easy for us to read this letter today going, yeah, but this was a church that was written to a couple of thousand years ago, so we'll just read a story about them, what was going on with them, but that's not us. That's not the point of these letters. We've talked about that. So what's going on is no one, as we read this, no one's going to think that we're the church at Thyatira. Not even Thyatira thought they were Thyatira, right? As Jesus addresses them, they're going to go, that's, those aren't our problems. They would have assumed that's probably one of those other churches you're writing to. And then they go, oh, shoot, that's got my name at the top of it, right? And as I've studied it this week, like I, I said when we did Ephesus, that like I feel like of all the seven letters were Ephesus, and I think that that's true on our best day. Ephesus was talked about as good doctrine, patient endurance, good work for the city, all of that kind of stuff. The one thing that Christ had against them was they left their first love. I think that we are Ephesus on our best day, and we need to hear that warning. But it's also true, as I read this letter, I think we're Thyatira most days. Maybe on our worst day for sure, but most, like, we live here more than we want to realize no one wants to think you're Thyatira until you're honest with yourself, which I know is hard to do in church. But we're Thyatira. And so there's three moves to our text today. There's three moves to our sermon. Number one, Jesus is going to commend this church. He doesn't just straight lace them. Like he comes in with some encouragement, like legitimate encouragement, not just an on-ramp for complaint, but legitimate encouragement. The second thing he's going to do is bring his complaint. So first, he commends them. Second, he has a complaint against the church. And then thirdly, he's going to call this church forward. So let's get back to the text in verse 18, the commendation. It says this, To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze, I know your works, your love, your faith, your service, your patient endurance and that your latter works exceed the first. Okay, so every one of these seven letters begins with a description of Jesus that comes from the revelation that John had of Jesus, the vision that John had of Jesus back in chapter one, right? There's this picture where he sees him high and exalted with all this stuff going on. And each part of that vision of Jesus is then layered through these seven letters, and it has something to do with what Jesus is about to say. So here, Jesus is described as having eyes like flames of fire. Now, that's not just a Halloween verse where you're supposed to be scared of Jesus, right? That's not what's going on with this. Eyes like flames of fire mean there's nothing that his eyes do not touch. He sees everything. Nothing is hidden from his sight. 
He's aware of everything. Nothing goes unnoticed by him. All things are laid bare before him. And when you hear that, again, that's not supposed to be a trembling thing only. It's also supposed to be a comforting thing. Here's what I mean. I think about the story of the woman at the well in John chapter 4. Maybe you've heard the story before. She was a promiscuous woman. She had five different lovers. The one she was with wasn't any of those five. And if on showing up that day when Jesus meets with her, if we were to coach Jesus and he were to ask us, which would be a crazy scenario, he were to ask us, what sermon do you think I ought to preach to this woman? And he knows all the things about her. The first thing we would say is, don't touch sexuality today. That's not the way to woo her. That's not the way to bring her in. Like that's gonna be wildly offensive and she's gonna reject and resist you like a judge. But Jesus doesn't consult us for coaching and that's a good thing. Because the thing he does is he approaches her right at the pressure point of the most shame in her life. He touches it. He addresses it. And he already knew all the details. And here's what's crazy. The text says on down in John chapter four, she left that conversation with Jesus rejoicing, (laughs) rejoicing. And here's what she says. She goes back to her village and she says, I just met a man who's told me everything I've ever done rejoicing, which translation means, and it wasn't creepy. Jesus uses his exhaustive knowledge. He sees everything with eyes like flames of fire. It's not like you look at him and there's fire in his eyes, but it's like you lock eyes with him and you just kind of know you see everything, don't you? You see everything. He brings it to sobriety. Jesus uses his exhaustive knowledge and his uninterrupted sight. He uses that not to shame us, but to save us. He uses the fact that everything is uncovered, not to expose us, but to heal us. That's what the woman at the well experienced. So it begins with saying, this Jesus we serve who's speaking to us has eyes like flames of fire. There's nothing in your life that's gone unnoticed by him. And yet he still speaks to you. He still speaks to you. Good news. He also says he's got feet like burnished bronze. And what this means is it's not that he's got like metal feet. What this means is like you look at him and you realize you stand with assurance. You stand with confidence. You stand with security and you're firm in your judgments. You're firm in your word. You stand by what you say. I'll say it this way. Jesus knows what he says and he never budges He knows what he's doing when he says the things he says, and he never wastes any words. Jesus never wastes words. He doesn't just speak to hear himself talk. He's not a bad preacher. Jesus speaks on purpose, and he uses the words he uses on purpose. This is the Christ addressing the church at Thyatira. It's a good one to address you. And so he goes on then and he has five encouragements, five commendations of this church, five things where he says, I like this about you. I see this, I know this is going on and well done in these areas. Look at what he says. He says, I know your works. I know your love, your faith, your service, your patient endurance. All these churches were enduring persecution. You're enduring underneath that. I see your patient endurance. He then goes on to say, unique encouragement here, that your latter works the works that have happened as you've grown over time, your latter works, your most recent works, are greater than the ones you did at first. This is a unique encouragement that he gives only to this church, which means they're the only growing church. Of the seven addressed, they're the only church that's growing. Your latter works exceed your first. Over time, you've grown in these ways. I don't know if this is numeric growth or if it's just kind of character growth in the things he commends, love and faith and service and patient endurance. He's saying you're growing. 
So if we were just to stop here, knowing that you know there's a complaint coming forward, if we stop here, you go, what's there to complain about? Like, it seems like everything's going well. They're, they, they do the things they're supposed to do. They love one another. They serve one another. They've got faith. They endure under persecution. What's wrong with this church? There would be a tendency for us just to stop and see all the busy activity and not get any questions. The pastor here, when he sees this at 19, he's probably thinking, I need a raise. I'm doing a good job. Right? But there's something we ought to notice here. Knowing what does come next, a complaint, just because everything seems to be going well doesn't mean everything is right at the core. There are times when there are ways of external, what seem like blessing that can numb us from the, from the ways that we really need to address the core of our conscience, right? Just because things are going well on the outside doesn't mean on the inside and what's going on in the core of things is exactly as it appears. And so Jesus says, I've got this complaint against you and this is the second move of the text. Look at verse 20. He says, but I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Okay, so the tone of this letter just took a sharp right turn, right? Here's this one who speaks to you, eyes like flames of fire, feet like burnished bronze. I know your love, your faith, your service, your patient endurance, your great, your latter works are better than your early ones. But I've got something against you. You hang out with this woman Jezebel, (laughs) right? And so there's a lot going on in this passage, but stay with me because I want to make it plain for us. So he tells this prophetess, this one who believes she hears from God. She's called Jezebel in this text. It says that she's seducing the people in the church. So a little context for what's happening in Thyatira. This was a city that was wildly industrious. So this was a blue-collar city. All the industry that happened in this city that created goods that were traded around the other cities and the letters of the churches um, came from Thyatira. Ephesus benefited from the work of Thyatira. Pergamum benefited from the service and the work of Thyatira. Everyone was benefiting from these, from these workers in this city. This is a city that uh, ancient history tells us they were the first, one of the first cities to have labor unions in the ancient world. And so these, these ancient, um, the, these labor unions were a part of what it meant to be a part of the, the business market in that day. So to be a metal worker or a banker or an artist or to sell clothes meant you had to be a part of these. This is how Rome controlled industry in their day. You've got to be in a labor union to have a place in the market. Now here's where things got messy for the church. Each one of these trade unions had a patron god that, that was over their sort of their, their industry that they had to worship and pay homage to. Every one of these had that. And this is, often was the, was the worship of Caesar or some other pagan god. And they believed that worshiping this god gave blessing and prosperity to their industry. And so what would happen in these labor unions throughout the first century in Thyatira is they would have these feasts periodically throughout the year. They'd throw these parties like like network conferences for a given trade or a given labor. And coming to these feasts, what they would regularly do is they would sacrifice to these idols, their their patron god of choice for their industry, and then they would eat that food as sort of a Thanksgiving or a meal, right? And then at the end, very often with all of these pagan gods, it was believed that if you really worshiped them, it wasn't just offering them food, but it was then practicing sexual rituals with temple prostitutes. And here's where there was a real rub for the Christians. Because to be a part of the labor union meant you had a job in the city. 
and you had to participate fully what was going on there, or you would be noticed by Rome and you'd be cast out of the union so as to not participate in practice in the feast they held was meaning you'd be removed from the union, therefore you would have unemployment and a life of poverty. And you'd be considered an outcast in society. And so here's where we get to the woman Jezebel. If you know your Bible very well, Jezebel was a queen in the Old Testament. She was married to King Ahab. In 1 Kings 16, it's a crazy thing. It tells us that King Ahab was the worst king in the history of Israel. In 1 Kings 16, in a matter of three verses from verse 30 to 33, it says two times he did more to provoke the anger of the Lord than any other king in the history of Israel. When it's said of that of you two times in three verses, it's really bad. Like that's not what you want said of you that close together. So he led Israel into all kinds of idolatry, rebellion. Uh, Jezebel was behind all of this deception of the people of God. She worked with Ahab to get her hands on any prophet of Yahweh she could and put them to death. She wanted nothing pressing against her idolatrous ways. And so Jezebel was a deceiver of God's people. So in this passage now, mentions Jezebel, it's not likely that the woman in Thyatira was actually named Jezebel. You don't name your daughter Jezebel, right? Like that's like you name your son David or Paul or Mary or Rachel for your daughter, not Jezebel. Like that's the equivalent of saying, I want a son named Goliath. You know, like you don't, that's not what you do, right? So Jezebel, her name wasn't that in Thyatira, but she was living and acting out of the spirit of Jezebel deceiving the church. And so she claimed herself to be a prophetess, which meant she says, I believe I have a word from God that's unique from the scriptures. And she taught that she didn't, that God, she believed she heard from him, that God didn't have a problem with the activities of the union gatherings. That being a Christian had nothing to do with participating in idol worship or sexual perversion, since that wasn't required just to have a job. According to her, God would surely understand the demands and the ethical crisis they were faced with, and it would be okay to carry on in this way. You could remain a Christian and a part of society. After all, God has grace for these sorts of things. God has grace for these sorts of things. Participate, blend in with culture. Don't be noticed as someone weird or freakish. You don't have to submit to a life of poverty. Just participate unilaterally with whatever is being asked of you, and you can have your Christ on the side. Rest in grace and carry on. Okay. So there's the history lesson. I don't know how you're hearing all of that. There's probably a couple of different responses in the room. On the one hand, if you're tracking with me, you're going, I'm appalled at such a manipulation of God's grace. There's probably also another group in the room that says, well, I totally get the dilemma. Like it's a legit dilemma. I don't know, maybe you're saying, I don't know that I would go all the way to temple prostitution, but if it meant my well-being and my job, I'm not sure that a little compromise is all that bad. I may, I may have stayed around for the meal, you know, but then I would have like ducked out when no one sees me when they got to the sex part. Like I, you know, I just want to just blend in. Like I don't, some of you go, I, I totally get the dilemma. And that's precisely the point of what's going on in this letter. Those two responses of I'm appalled, and on the other hand, maybe it's okay, those stand at the core of what Jesus has in his complaint. Because here's what's going on. Very often in your life and in mine, when hypocrisy is swirling about either inside of us or in the people that we love around us, at the least, at best, we just turn a blind eye and hope and pretend it'll go away. 
right? We don't want to name it. We don't want to call it out. We just kind of go, that's crazy, and we'll just move on and shove it down. At worst, what we'll do is we'll see it in ourselves, or we'll see it in the people that we love around us, and we can name it, and we can look at it, but instead of addressing it and dealing with the awkward of calling it out, we just want to take care of number one, leave those others to themselves, and pretend that we've, we are better than uh, we project ourselves to be with our own standard of self-righteousness that we've justified our own hypocrisy or even theirs, Right? And so on either side, the heart of the issue for Thyatira, and listen, the heart of the issue in this text for us is that very often we just don't think that sin against God is that big a deal. After all, we're all sinners, aren't we? No one's perfect. I'm just a human. We're all going to sin. And so sin against God just isn't that big a deal. Porn's not that big a deal. Sleeping around for singles, it's casual sex. It's part of our culture. It's not that big a deal. Occasionally drinking too much at the business gathering, it's kind of what you do. Having that secret attraction to the coworker or that flirtatious relationship outside of your spouse, it's all kind of fine and well and good, just so long as nothing's getting out of control and I'm faithful to my wife and nothing crazy happens. As long as I keep everything kind of on the rails and just kind of have my own little pet moments of rebellion or urges or whatever kind of on the side, then God just kind of forgives that kind of stuff. So here's what we want to do. We want to minimize sin. Let's not talk about that. Let's not talk about sin. Instead, let's, well, here's what we should do. Let's maximize grace. Let's maximize love. Let's maximize mercy. Let's not talk about things that would cause us to second guess ourselves. Let's not talk about things that we know are true, but that would make us feel bad. Instead, let's only focus on the things that tell us we're okay without having to actually take responsibility. That's what's going on in Thyatira. And here's what's so crazy, the thing that struck me this week. The reason that Jesus speaks into this, the edge of the burden for Jesus in addressing all of this is just how serious he is about his people, you and me, living out the holiness that he purchased for us. And when I talk about holiness this morning, maybe that's a foreign word to you. Maybe you're used to that word. But when I talk about holiness, I'm not talking about morals. I'm not talking about just being a moral person. Holiness is way more than just living a moral life. Here's what holiness is, in case you want a short definition. Holiness is about having all of your affections and all of your allegiance pointed toward God with no exceptions. It's all of your affections and all of your allegiance and all of life, God has it. And I think for most of us, when I talk about holiness, for most of us, I don't, I don't think we're really concerned with living a holy life. And I say that because I don't know the last time I just thought about living a holy life. Like, when's the last time, be honest with yourself, when's the last time you thought to yourself, you know what, man, I need more holiness in my life. I, I dare say it hasn't, hasn't crossed your mind in a while. And you know why? You know why we don't think about that? Because to have more holiness, to have more affection and full-on allegiance toward God means that our flesh and our desires have to die. And that's painful. So you don't just think, you know, randomly, you know, you know, I'm eating some mac and cheese. I need more holiness. Like, no one does that. No one does that. And that's something of what's being exposed here. See, we, we would rather just live a comfortable life. What we're most concerned with is not holiness, but living a comfortable life 
and then have Jesus on the side as a security blanket to a well-rounded life and the hope of heaven, which just gives us more comfort to our already comfortable life. We're more concerned with living a comfortable, no drama life. But the death of Jesus, and here's the thing that's just so crazy on the holiness of God. The reason that Jesus died was not just to pay for your sin and your lack of holiness. That was part of it. Jesus died to compensate for your deficiencies and my deficits and a lack of holiness in my sin. He died for that. But that's not all the reason he died. He also died to purchase for us the experience of God's holiness that would transform us into something new and beautiful that's all surpassingly pleasing. Jesus really believed that it wasn't just your sin that needed to be paid for. He really believed that the pleasure of God's holiness was worth it. And without his death, you and I would never get it. That's what's sent into the cross. We think about holiness as a killjoy or a burden. It was the pleasure of Christ. And that's what drove him to have nails in his hands and his feet and a crown shoved in his skull. It should say something really profound to us that God so loved us, not just to pay for our sin, but also to win for us the all-surpassing pleasure of knowing his holiness. A heart with affections and allegiance that belongs to God with no strings attached. So this is the complaint against the church. In verse 20, what's going on is the church has tolerated Jezebel. Like, so it's not like someone from the outside has come in to teach this crazy stuff to the church. It's someone inside, someone on the pew, someone singing the same songs, praying the same prayers, then has this other belief that like God's okay with you running a rampant life, but then also having Jesus on the side. She's coming from the inside and the church has just tolerated it. She's like, well, the church just kind of gets together and they see her on the pew and they go, Jezebel's gonna Jezebel, she crazy. And they don't say anything about it. They just kind of let her live in her midst and other people are following her. Now the whole church wasn't caught in this, but plenty were following her and they just turned a blind eye and they said, I'll do my thing, you'll do yours. Holiness, it's up for grabs. But then Jesus moves forward in 21 through 23 with a warning. Look at what he says. He says, I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her, I will also throw into great tribulation unless they repent of their works. I will strike her children dead and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the mind and the heart and I will give to each one according to his works. So you would think that Jesus would like take his foot off the gas around the turn. He just presses it harder. He just presses it harder. And this is huge for us. Don't miss what Jesus is saying for all the unfamiliar language in this passage. So Jesus gives a warning and it's important to know who the warning is for. Jesus gives a warning here and it's not to those outside the church. Those outside the church are not being warned here. He's not warning those who are not Christians. If you're here today and you're not yet a Christian in Jesus, this warning in this passage is not for you. Like he's not coming at you with this warning. This warning in this passage is not for Christians who are struggling and fighting against sin. It's not who this warning is for. This warning is specifically for those who confess Christ and are living in known sin and have no intention of doing anything about that. That's who this warning is for. And so verse 21 is alarming. Read it again. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses 
to repent. That is a startling verse. What Jesus is saying is this isn't the first time that Jezebel and I've had this conversation. Like I've been coming after her. I've been trying to address her. I've been trying to interrupt her. I've been trying to come around on this. Like she's been, she's been pressing and I've been trying to speak to her, get in her way, tell her it's war- warn her against some things. And she just has refused to listen. Not just her, but also those who are following her. When it says her children, it's talking about her followers, those who have listened to her teaching and just follow in after her. Jesus has pursued and pursued and pursued and pursued and pursued. And she said, nope, 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 nope. I've got my version of how this game works. And so the reply that Jesus makes in this passage makes very clear that his patience, because Jesus has patience. He's not showing up like out of nowhere with this word. Jesus has patience. He's making loud and clear, my patience and my mercy will not be mocked. My patience and my mercy will not be mocked. And so the reference to the sick bed and striking her children dead and all that crazy language in the passage, it's judgment language. Track with me. The, the sick bed is saying that the very bed that they were using to carry out their rebellious pleasures will be the very place of their downfall and destruction. Their presumed pleasure bed will in time be shown to see their own bed of judgment. The place where they thought they could get something more pleasing than God on the side will be the very bed that they see is their place of judgment. And the children to be struck dead are the followers of Jezebel. And this isn't so much saying that Jesus is gonna come out and act a physical judgment, but it's saying their refusal to repent with all these opportunities to do so, their refusal to repent is showing not that he needs to judge them. They stand judged already with hearts that are dead toward God. And so what does this mean for us? This isn't just about Thyatira. Thyatira lives in here, right? Thyatira lives in here. So what does this mean? It means today, if there's an area of your life where God is convicting you of sin, where God is trying to interrupt you and bring you to pause on a trajectory that you're rolling in where you have no regard for him, if he's trying to convict you, the point for us of Thyatira is don't harden your heart. Don't harden your heart. Don't harden your heart, that, that voice shows up, that interruption happens. But if you're not going to listen, he'll hand you over. He's patient. It's not going to happen in a moment. It's not going to happen over a season. These are extended seasons where he's tried to address Jezebel and she's just stiff-armed repeatedly. It also means for those who are believers in Jesus, there can be a way in which sometimes we think that because we have forgiveness, we're so used to forgiveness and grace that we take it for granted like we're entitled to it. So there's these areas of impulse or desire that show up in our life to rebel against God and to sin against him. And we think to ourselves in that moment, this isn't such a big deal. God will forgive me for that. There, there, there's grace for that. And so what this passage means to us is in those areas where you want to use grace as a license to carry out your crazy wonders and fantasies and inside impulses and desires, where you want to use grace to cover over for those things, you're revealing yourself in that place that you don't know grace like you think you do, and you don't know the giver of grace 
even though you say you might. The person who can look Jesus in the face and also look at their own dark desires in the face and say, he'll forgive me of that. Cavalier, don't understand who they're saying no to. Because when you see, and hey, let me say it this way, the reason that forgiveness is so free, the reason that forgiveness is so free, the reason sometimes it feels like, God, I can't believe you let me off the hook like that. The reason that grace is so good, the reason that forgiveness is so free is because someone else paid a really high and horrific price. Someone else did that. And so it might be your story that you look in the face of Jesus and you look at his innocent blood and then you have this war against sin. You're like, I don't know why I'm still struggling this, but I ache and I do the things I don't wanna do, but Jesus, I'm warring, help me. That might be your story. But if you look at innocent blood shed on the cross for your sin, and then you look at your sin and go, well, then you really don't know what you're looking at. The son of God didn't bleed out on accident. He bled out to give you a supreme pleasure in his holiness. And so listen, I want to say it this way. We don't fight against sin. We don't fight against those places in our life where we're tempted to rail on God. We don't fight against those things to feel better about ourselves or to have something to brag about. The reason that we fight against sin is because we love Jesus. Like to see innocent blood, to see the Son of God taking on him what should be laid on me says, I don't want to go out there and I want to fight against sin because that means everything to me. It means everything to me. And so as we close, this passage moves forward and Jesus calls us to hope. Look at verse 25 and we'll close. He says, only hold fast what you have until I come. He's coming, church. He's coming. He hasn't left to the struggle. Only hold fast what you have till I come. And the one who conquers, who keeps my works into the end, I will give him authority over the nations. He goes on to say, I will give him the morning star. What Jesus is saying when he says hold fast and what Jesus is saying when he says conquer is it's not pull yourself up by your bootstraps, turn a blind eye to all the temptations around you and just bury your head and make it. He's not saying that. If you know the scriptures, you can't hold fast and you can't conquer if you don't have help. Your track record proves you don't do those things. Mine too. Jesus is more committed to your holding fast and he's more committed to your conquering than you'll ever be. Jesus is more committed to your joining him in heaven with authority over the nations to give you himself, the morning star. He's more committed to getting you home than you'll ever be. He's way more committed to it. There's no day that you'll wake up with more ambition to fight sin that he won't wake up to say, I've got all the more ambition to empower you to slay that stuff. He's committed. He'll get you home. And so he speaks this hard word to us, not because he's against us. He speaks a word of warning and judgment. And he speaks a word of a call to repent because he loves us. Let me say it this way. And we'll really close, I promise. There's only one thing worse than being disciplined, and that's not being disciplined. So I know discipline stings, and the call to repent and the serious call to holiness is difficult, but there's something worse than that for God to never show up with that word. 
that's worse. And so the firmness of this passage is loud and clear. God is not against you. He's not against you. He's wildly for you. He could have left Thyatira with a silent word, but he chose to speak. Let him who has an ear hear what the Spirit says to the churches.